Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their cultural, social, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Still London's best and brightest radio station, and still bringing you exciting new shows despite the challenges posed by COVID-19 and the ongoing gentrification of London. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm going to be discussing a pandemic and the widespread changes it wrought upon ways of living in a programme on the cultural impact of the HIV and AIDS crisis, focusing on the impact in the United States and the United Kingdom. So joining me today are two guests, James Butler and Sarah Shulman. James Butler will doubtless be a familiar voice to many Sweet 212 listeners, as he's been hosting Navarra FM on Resonance since 2011. Without this, Sweet 212 would most likely not exist, as the inventive format, intellectual rigour and poetic approach to politics of James's programmes showed me just how much was possible within an hour-long radio slot. And over the years, Navarra Media, which James co-founded, has grown into one of the most important UK outlets for news and commentary. James also writes regularly on politics and culture for the London Review of Books and can be found in The Guardian and elsewhere. He memorably hosts a brilliant daily podcast called The Burner in the run-up to last year's general election and throughout the first COVID-19 lockdown. Born in New York City in 1958, Sarah Shulman is a novelist, playwright, screenwriter, non-fiction writer, AIDS historian, journalist and citizen. She's a co-founder of MIX, New York's experimental film and video festival, and co-director of the ACT UP Oral History Project, and US coordinator of the first LGBT delegation to Palestine. She has written 10 novels and two plays, co-written two screenplays, and co-produced Jim Hubbard's documentary United in Anger, A History of ACT UP, released in 2012. Her 20th book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP, New York, 1987 to 1993, will be published by Farah Strauss and Giroux in May 2021. So James, Sarah, welcome to Sweet 212. I'm delighted to be here. Um, <laughs> it's good to have you on. I hope the introduction wasn't, uh, wasn't too much. It was sublime. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd just like to open by talking about how the cultural impact of the HIV and AIDS crisis is a topic very close to my heart, but one that we've never quite covered on Sweet 212, despite our extra shows on queer art and culture in France after May 68 and consciousness racing after Stonewall. As a teenager in the mid to late 1990s, aware that I didn't fit into normative models of gender or sexuality, but unable to find anything that would help me to understand myself at school or my local library, I turned to television and film for insights into gay, lesbian, bisexual and trans history and culture. I soon learned that a devastating illness had laid waste to the generation before mine. But as I came more interested in queer art, film, literature and music, I came to understand that numerous creative figures had died, some at the peak of their careers, some very young, and that the pandemic had drastically changed queer culture, seemingly creating a more assimilationist form of activism and an LGBT plus artistic scene that had lost many of its more radical voices and much of its radical edge. HIV was first identified in the United States and the United Kingdom in the year I was born, 1981, having circulated in Africa since the mid 20th century and most likely coming to the US in the late 1960s. The first American news story appeared in a gay publication called The New York Native, with initial cases noticed in intravenous drug users and gay men. The US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention started to look at the disease, 
which seemed to hit heroin users, homosexuals, haemophiliacs, and Haitians, referring to it as AIDS from September 1982, encouraging the media to use this term rather than GRID, gay-related immune disorder that proliferated in the early 80s. Throughout the early to mid-1980s, the disease disproportionately affected gay men, sex workers, drug users, and people of color, and the right-wing governments that had come to power in the US and UK in 1979 and 1980 were slow to react. Some of their conservative Christian outriders, such as the American politician and columnist Pat Buchanan or Manchester's police chief James Anderson in the United Kingdom, spoke about nature taking retribution on the gay community or talked about AIDS patients swirling in a cesspit of their own making, heightening a sense that these governments were neglecting the crisis as it was killing people they considered unimportant or undesirable, with public hostility towards AIDS victims amplified by a mainstream media assault on gay men in particular that aimed to push back on the rise of gay and lesbian activism throughout the 1970s. The first British death of an AIDS-related illness was recorded on the 12th of December 1981, and the death of Terry Higgins in July 1982 led to the foundation of the Terence Higgins Trust, um, which was the first British organisation to really kind of respond to the pandemic, which by October 1982 had killed 260 people in the US uh, and 46 in the United Kingdom by the end of 1984. Um, so it's really this point, sort of 84, 85, that I think we want to really come into the conversation. By that point, Panorama and Horizon had produced documentaries about the pandemic um, that were shown on British television. And in 1985, um, AIDS had been reported in 51 countries, and there was more understanding that could be passed on to children through breastfeeding. And there was already an issue with widespread misinformation and myths about how the virus could be transmitted. Nonetheless, it was clear by this point that the pandemic was disproportionately affecting gay men um, and that the gay kind of activist scenes and cultural scenes and club scenes would be irrevocably changed by, by the emergence of the disease. Um, one way into this, I think, is to talk a little bit more about the um, the politics before we we go into the um, the cultural responses. So, the World Health Organization launched its global AIDS strategy in 1986, um, and in April 1987, Princess Diana opened a new ward for HIV patients at Middlesex Hospital, um, where she famously shook the hands of um, HIV patients without wearing gloves. It's very important. Um, moment in how the um, the pandemic was thought about and presented in British culture and media. Um, around about the same time, the United Kingdom launched uh, a campaign called Don't Die of Ignorance with television adverts by Nicholas Rogue, uh, the director of performance and uh, Don't Look Now and various other things um, with the rather terrifying AIDS tombstone that I used to clip of in a short film a few years ago. Um, and the government also delivered leaflets to every household saying it was impossible to know who was carrying the virus. Um, at the same time, uh, Ronald Reagan created the first American presidential commission on the HIV epidemic, a full six years after the first cases were reported uh, with a consensus to establish more HIV testing focus on prevention and treatment and expanding HIV care in the 
US, uh, but the changes weren't implemented. The recommendations were largely ignored. And by 1987, more than 20,000 people had died of AIDS-related illnesses in the US alone. Um, and at that point, uh, Randy Schiltz brings out um, his book and the band played on, uh, accusing the Reagan administration of ignoring the pandemic due to homophobia, looking at the first confirmed non-African death from AIDS in 1977, due to the death of the actor Rock Hudson in 1985. Um, so maybe that's, that's an interesting way in. Um, Sarah, I don't know if you'd like to talk a little bit about um, the Reagan Presidential Commission, Randy Schiltz, and those kind of initial cultural responses in, in New York and San Francisco and in the US? Well, first I wanna say that the, the most significant difference between the British situation and the US is that we, we've never had a functional healthcare system. So some of the numbers that you put out, it's quite hard to know what our real numbers were. People believe that, uh, you know, th there was an article in the New York Times on July 3rd, 1981. That was the first popular announcement of AIDS. And that was about the case of um, an, a rare cancer in homosexuals in San Francisco. Um, but we now think that over 200,000 people were already infected by the time of that article. And in fact, the numbers that we have for the first five years are 40,000 deaths in the United States. But it, what, really, what the real story is, is that AIDS was here in the underclass. Now I've interviewed um, Betty Williams, who was a Quaker working with homeless people in the 1960s and 70s. And she reported that the people that she worked with already had vocabulary for AIDS-like symptoms. For example, they talked about junkie pneumonia. They talked, which we now know was PCP pneumonia. They talked about the dwindles, which we now know are wasting syndrome. So AIDS was so present in the 60s and 70s that there was vocabulary for it. But because the underclass had no access to healthcare, it was only when it hit a certain level of gay men where a pattern could be observed. And that's 1981. So already you see a profound difference between mm. the UK and the US. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly there were like far fewer deaths um, in the UK. And actually, I think one of the most interesting um, political ramifications of the AIDS crisis here uh, in Britain isn't so much um, directly to do with the government's response to AIDS, but to do with um, Section 28 um, that was introduced in 1986 as part of a local government bill uh, was partly a response to the um, rule in London of the Greater London Council that we talked about in last month's episode with Owen Hathaway and Hazel Atashru, um, but was a way of kind of um, tying together um, a conservative plan to strip local government of lots of its power and a moral panic in the British tabloids. Mm. Um, James, I don't know if you'd like to talk yeah. a bit more about this. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, so I think one of the things that Sarah is saying, is, which is so interesting and so important, is, is about the role of gay men um, throughout this crisis, which is it, it, precisely in that kind of, you know, obviously not all gay men, but, but, but homosexuality and homosexual men occupy a kind of you know, really odd position in the kind of coalition of queer people in that uh, they're the ones with the closest access to power 
And so when something starts to affect gay men, then it becomes recognized as something, uh, you know, very, <clears throat> you know, something worth taking seriously or something worth noticing, although it's obviously takes a long time to be taken seriously in the United States. Um, it's section 28 here, I think um, it's quite important to, to, to realize, you know, I, I talk about it as an act of kind of legislative queer bashing uh, which is very much, you know, what it was. The context here is that this is a clause, as you say, that was brought in uh, as part of kind of local government reform um, off the back of a tabloid campaign about a book. It started off as this book that's available in uh, the Inner London Education Authority Library. It is a library that's only accessible to teachers, incidentally. But it's a book called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. It's really rather quite soporific, um, but rather sweet Danish book about you know, a, a girl with gay parents. This becomes sordid sex lessons in the Daily Mail. Um, it's deliberately whipped up, this classic uh, reactionary panic. There's a dossier brought by a minister um, in, in, in which, which, which cites kind of these adverts for, you know, gay outreach workers. And this is like a evidence of a kind of sinister homosexual conspiracy. Uh, support for, for it came from both sides. So this prevents the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Um, and it's it's meet, it's met with this kind of extraordinary campaign of resistance in the UK, which ties into to the networks formed um, around AIDS activism. You have the infamous abseiling lesbians. Um, this is a, a really remarkable uh, moment of kind of political cultural intervention. Um, uh, but the, so the consequences here are actually profound and very long. Both Juliet and I um, will have grown up in in schools uh, where gay teachers felt unable to talk to pupils that they would have recognized as gay. So you grew up with this kind of coded, uh, you know, half nodding, uh, but unable to. So, so there was this kind of deep sense of social shame. And this was deliberate. It was deliberate. It was deliberately engineered. This is a government, you know, under Thatcher, where she addresses conference, you know, moaning about children having, being taught that they have the inalienable right to be gay. This is direct quotation from Thatcher at the time. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and this this thing goes on and on and on until well into the Blair governments. I think in England it's only repealed in two thousand and three. So, so this is you know, and there's a huge tabloid convulsion about it. And this is while I'm growing up as a teenager, and in the back of my granddad's cab, he took the Sun every day. So I'd read the Sun because I'd go with him to school in the morning. I would read filth about gay people, and with the dawning realization that I was one of them, and that was the legacy there. And it was so tied up with HIV AIDS, so tied up because the playground discourse there was like, oh, you know, AIDSy, you know, whenever there's anything about uh, a kind of homosexuality at all. So, so this is, I think, hugely, hugely important. And the other part of this, you know, as I said about shame, is silence as well. Uh, and one of the things, you know, I thought was really interesting in your introduction, Juliet, is that, you know, I also had this sense of this profound kind of absence and mystery and not knowing how to break into, I, I, I knew that there was this community of queer people out there somewhere, but how you got into it, you'd see the occasion. I remember seeing the wonderful Divine David on Channel 4 uh, late one night, I think in the late 90s, 1998, and thinking, yeah, okay, my people are out here, but you know, how do I get to them? And this is, you know, I, this is all tied, you know, the, the, so Section 28 and, and the story of resistance to, to kind of government programs on HIV AIDS, you know, they're very, very, very tied up in the UK. I don't think you can think of them separately and certainly the 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 cultural output 
you know, if we will come on, I'm sure to talk about Derek Jarman, for instance, um, you know, the cultural output here is, is, you know, AIDS and homophobic legislation that, that, you know, they're tied so, so intimately together. Yeah, let me um, <clears throat> jump on that. So, you know, 1980, Reagan was elected president and the way he got elected was that the Republican party, which had been primarily a, ca a party about money, made an alliance with the evangelicals who had never voted before and brought them into the party. And that's like what produces the Trump hysteria that we have today, right? So, so Reagan who had been pro-gay and pro-abortion and all of that ended up taking this very strong anti-gay position. So that starts in 1980. Then we have that there's no federally coordinated program. So everything is about locale, which is very much what we have right now with COVID. So we had sodomy laws also until 2003. And in fact, in New, even in New York City, there was no anti-discrimination law until 1986. So gay people are basically an illegal entity. And into this mix, you throw gay cancer. Now, what's so interesting about that phrase is that the idea that cancer could be gay is so specific to that time. Now we know that that's an absurd phrase, but at that time, there was all these theories about homosexuality being biological, right? So that homosexuality was one thing and it was connected to some kind of genetic predetermined thing connected to your uh, hypothalamus, that was the theory. And so therefore AIDS was the disease of homosexuality. And that's why, for example, lesbians were not allowed to give blood because it was homosexuality that was a sickness. So it's, it's a very similar paradigm. Yeah, and as I said in the introduction, the understanding that there were ways of um, transmitting HIV and AIDS other than through like gay sex took some time to filter through, you know, it's only in 1985, for example, that the US Food and Drug Administration acknowledges that HIV can be transmitted through drug infusions. Um, but it's not long after this, I want to move the conversation on to um, some of the activism that happens in, in response. Um, so it's, it's, it's in the sort of second half of the 1980s that the writer and activist Larry Kramer um, co-founds Gay Men's Health Crisis and then the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power um, or ACT UP as it's better known. Um, and Sarah, I know you've done a lot of work on this, so maybe you'd like to tell our listeners a bit more about, um, about ACT UP and Larry Kramer's role in it. Okay, so Larry Kramer has been over-credited it's interesting because I've interviewed 188 surviving members of ACT UP New York and not one person considered Larry to be an active leader inside the, the movement. He, he gave a speech on March 10th, 1987, that was the catalyst for the first meeting from which ACT UP was created. But he is not the founder of ACT UP and he certainly wasn't the leader of ACT UP. He was constantly in conflict with ACT UP. He was always quitting. He, you know, he's not a person who was, um, actually there were about, a, there were hundreds of people in ACT UP who took initiative. It's a very group oriented movement. And one of the things that made it so successful, and even though it didn't end AIDS, it did transform the paradigm around AIDS, um, was that it was not a consensus-based movement. 
And so you did not have to have agreement to go forward. The only point of unity was direct action to end the AIDS crisis, which meant direct action meant no social services. So if what you wanted to do was direct action to end the AIDS crisis, basically you could do it. And if you didn't need the whole group to support it. So if you wanted to go into St. Patrick's Cathedral and disrupt mass because the Catholic church was interfering with public schools distributing condoms, and I thought that was terrible, I just wouldn't do it, but I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. So in this way, there was simultaneity of response and people could respond based on who they were and where they were at, instead of trying to force people to be someplace that they weren't, which doesn't work and has never worked historically. So this mode of multiple approaches and multiple strategies at the same time is why ACT UP ultimately was successful to the extent that it was. Yeah, and obviously, you know, as we're uh, we're an art show after all, I think we we have to talk about Grand Fury, the artistic wing of um, ACT UP. So maybe we could cover a bit of what they did and how effective it was. Well, actually, just like Larry Kramer, Grand Fury gets all the credit, but there was a lot of different art groups inside ACT UP. So there was House of Color, which was a people of color video group. There was Diva TV that um, did used video to cover police brutality. There also, it also depends on how you define art. If you define art by gallery art or by let's say graphics, you tend to get white people. But if you have a more expansive definition of art, for example, if you include nightlife, then a lot of the more people of color were expressing themselves through nightlife. So for example, the main lesbian bar at the time was called the Click Club. And it was run by Julie Tolentino and Jocelyn Taylor who were members of ACT UP. And Jocelyn's partner at the time, Lola Flash, a black photographer, um, did a great deal of work that was wildly known. Aldo Hernandez, a, lit, a Cuban American who was in ACT UP ran, ran a men's night called Meet. So there was nightlife that was an extension of ACT UP. Then the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus did work in China, artwork in Chinatown, did performance work in uh, gay clubs that catered to Asians. So there was a lot of artwork in all different kinds of levels of the society, but there also was gallery work and graphic design. Yeah, and um... I think maybe another another figure who it would be quite interesting to talk about here, partly because I am a very long-standing fan of um, of their work, which I think in Britain in particular is really quite underrated, is the German filmmaker Rosa von Praunheim. Um, von Praunheim had been making films since the late 60s, I think, was part of this sort of new German cinema group of directors that's got sort of lumped together around about that time. Um, and it's quite an interesting counterpoint to someone like Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Um, von Braunheim's films were often a bit kind of rougher and messier, uh, sometimes more propagandistic, um, sometimes not, sometimes very um, controversial. Um, I think he's still best known for a film called It's Not Homosexual Who's Perverse, but the society in which he lives, which was an imminent critique of early 70s um, gay culture um, that even now when it's screened is often screened with a discussion because the film needs, I think, still some sort of contextualization. Um, 
but one of my favorite works of his is a, um, a queer musical starring um, the punk transsexual singer Jane County uh, called City of Lost Souls. Um, and this to me feels like one of the kind of last pre-AIDS films. Uh, in fact, several of the cast members um, contracted, indeed some died of, um, of the disease. Uh, but it sort of depicts a sort of, you know, a sort of sexual sort of looseness, I think, and a certain uh, kind of abandon that you don't see again in von Praunheim's work. Um, he makes a trilogy of films in the late 80s. He makes, I think, either two or three of them in New York. So there's uh, two documentaries, Silence Equals Death, of course, taking on the, the famous slogan um, and positive, um, and in them, uh, von Praunheim speaks to a number of people. Um, so uh, David Wojnarowicz and Keith Haring. Um, Keith Haring features in one of the films, um, talking about an erotic mural that he was working on, which he described as nostalgia for the time of carefree sex. Uh, and Haring died uh, three months before Silence Equals Death was released. Um, but he also talks to Allen Ginsberg, uh, the filmmaker Phil Zwicker uh, and the singer Diamanda Gallus. Um, I think they're really interesting films. Um, some of them are available online, Positive certainly is, and I really recommend that viewers go and watch it. Um, but I wonder if either of you had anything you wanted to add on, um, on Vampire oh, I'm in one of those yeah. I'm in one of them. I can't remember which one. Um, I'm also in Rose's film, Coming to New York. And actually Rosa then, brought me, Michael Callan, and Robert Hilferty to Germany to try to start ACT UP there. But we failed because it was too early and people did not believe that the AIDS crisis was coming. And Robert and Michael are both dead now. So I, I'm the, the, the witness survivor mm -hmm. of that experience. Yeah, so the, you know, there was a, see, the, the two main tributaries into ACT UP were the avant-garde, which was truly avant-garde. There's not people who went to art school and studied experimental, but people who actually just became artists and the underground queer community. So people who came from two different unrecognized, unrepresented cultures who had a sort of attitude that was not respectful of, it was, not, it was the opposite of respectability politics. So in terms of Cinema, cinematic avant-garde. The number of filmmakers who came through ACT UP is absolutely stunning. Todd Haynes, Tom Kalin, Lisa Cholodenko, Kimberly Pierce, Rose Trochet, Maria Magenti, and then all these experimental filmmakers. You just mentioned Phil Zwickler, who's dead, David Wanarovich. The Mix Festival was co-founded by me and Jim Hubbard, who was also in ACT UP. So it was a real place of swirling cinematic production and also writers, David Feinberg, Michael Cunningham. I mean, there were so many writers who came out of ACT UP as well. So, you know, you could see it's just a convergence of two avant-garde. And what's interesting, my, my history book on ACT UP is coming out in May. It's, it's mammoth, it's 750 pages. And when you read through it, it's a certain kind of person that really doesn't exist anymore. People were very messy. Like they did all kinds of crazy things and things that people like them today would not do. 
and you know they made accusations and they did drugs and they OD'd and they stole money from the organization and they lied about having HIV and you know and they handcuffed themselves to the wrong people and they did all this kind of but they won. And there's something about that messiness and that refusal to conform and that insistence on doing it the way you want to that ultimately was successful because of these underground and avant-garde roots, I think. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think this is so interesting because so I've been going back and reading recently, um, last year, I think, or the year before, Verso books here reissued um, as part of the Radical Thinkers series, a lot of stuff that had been written just prior to the AIDS crisis in the UK. So this is early gay liberation front stuff, kind of gay Marxist group stuff. So all, like, you know, and the politics of this stuff, all super interesting, like some of the debates, kind of the sort of stuff that make that send me to sleep. But like a lot of it is really interesting, this question of like negotiating desire and family structures. Uh, and, you know, and, and actually like having, you know, quite a confrontational politics around this stuff. And it, it's just nowhere to be seen afterwards. And I think there's something, you know, we, you know, when we talk about the history of queer politics it, these days, it's almost as if it starts with the crisis. And I think it's so important to remember that those people who are going into the crisis very often had contact with these kind of earlier countercultural, like strong, like very, very interesting thinking about desire and how that plays into politics and what kind of role desire, you know, can play for us and, and the kind of things desire does to you and you don't always handle it very well. Um, so all that stuff is coming is coming in here. And just the other thing that's striking me from from this conversation in particular is uh, and one of the reasons actually, Sarah, I'm really looking forward to the book is that certainly here in the UK, history, the history of the act, uh, of, of ACT UP, but the history of all this activism is only very, very patchily recorded. So there are still people around, people I know, people you talk to, but you ask them about a particular event and boy, do the recollections not match up. Um, you know, so so lots of this stuff is is in this very fragmentary oral state. And like, and I think it's, you know, we have these this kind of grab bag of cultural artifacts, um, lots of which give us a lens in which, they, but, but the stories are still out there and they're still kind of worth hearing. And I think that's increasingly important for, um, you know, contemporary queer politics, such as it is to hear. Well, so Juliet, I kind of want to disagree with you about, um, uh, sexual content in queer cinema, because you have people like Bruce LaBruce in mm. Canada and um, yeah. films like Short Bus. And I don't know if you know this, but Cheryl Dunye and I did a triple X rated film called Mommy is Coming that won a feminist porn award. So there's been, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sexual content in queer work, but it doesn't have the wild abandon. And, and it's not just because the wild abandon isn't there, but it's also that a lot of that was shot on film, which was quite cheap at the time. And now film is, nobody shoots on film and everything is on video and we've become oversaturated with video. So the way that people shoot, like if you go back to um, the Cockettes, are you familiar with yeah. them? And you yeah. look at films of theirs like Trisha's Wedding, which was about Trisha Nixon, the daughter of, um, Richard Nixon and they made the film by all of them taking LSD and then it devolves into this huge food fight and they all, people start having sex and all that kind of thing. Um, there's people just don't shoot film that way anymore and also drug use is a, has a completely different role in the culture. Yeah um, I think maybe we can we can sort of 
work back to that. I want to um, keep the conversation on visual culture um, and also to remind our listeners that they're listening to Suite 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM and we're talking about the um, cultural impact of the HIV and AIDS crisis in the UK and the US with James Butler and Sarah Shulman. Um, so I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about photography now and the importance of photography. We've talked a bit about changes in the ways in which certain queer histories were recorded as a result of the crisis. Um, and, you know, there are a number of um, photographers or series of photographic works that became quite important during the crisis. Um, some listeners will, of course, know like Nan Golden's work and the Ballad of Sexual Dependency and the photographs she took of, um, of her friends during the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, we've already talked about Section 28 and um, the photographer Sanil Gupta made a series of photographs called Pretended Family Relationships, which is a response to some of the wording in that law um, showing like queer couples. Um, Mark Chester took a series of photos of his friend Robert Chesley uh, showing the body of a man with AIDS and legions from Kaposi's sarcoma, which is a common condition for HIV positive people. Um, and there are a number of, um, of other examples. Um, but one particularly interesting um, use of photography, I think, was um, Robert Mapplethorpe, who died in 1989, an exhibition of his was cancelled. Um, and um, activists projected photographs onto the side of the Corcoran Gallery of Art building um, at a time where there were arguments over American federal funding. Um, so Sarah, maybe we could talk a little bit more about like Robert Mapplethorpe and, and the sort of culture war issues uh, and the funding issues um, around these works in particular. Well, I actually just wanna bring the photography discussion in a little bit of a different direction. I have a chapter on this and I've really been thinking about it. There was a huge conscious fight over how to represent people with AIDS in photography. And it was a cultural battle. So it starts with the Museum of Modern Art had a show by someone named Nicholas Nixon, who was a straight man whose photographs of people with AIDS were all like emaciated, helpless people in beds, surrounded by their families, you know, um, very, very helpless. And people in ACT UP really were frustrated by this. So two activists, Alexis Danzig, whose father had died of AIDS, and um, somebody, Ellen Nypris, who was a photographer herself, did an action by going into MoMA, sitting on a bench in the gallery room, holding up photos of Alexis's father and of people in ACT UP in active fighting positions and saying, these are photos of people with AIDS and the guards let them do it. So that was like the beginning of saying, no, we're gonna fight for this territory. I interviewed Donna Binder, and this is a fascinating interview. I highly recommend it. It's in the ACT UP Oral History Project, which can be viewed at actuporalhistory.org. So Donna Binder was a photojournalist who was in ACT UP, and she was in the position of bringing photographs to photo editors, of course, this is the olden days before internet. So you literally had to develop the photos and then take them physically to the person's office. And she was bringing all these photos of people with AIDS fighting back. And the editors were saying, no, we want images of people with AIDS. And she was saying, these are people with AIDS. 
and they were rejecting them until 1989 when ACT UP went into St. Patrick's Cathedral and disrupted mass. After that, photo editors from USA Today and Time Magazine, the most mainstream conservative outlets started to take picture photos of activism. So it was actually like the face-to-face -face between the photojournalists and the editors that transformed this representation. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's really interesting. And, and can we lead on from there to talk a little bit about um, sort of Jesse Helms and the um, governmental response to some of, yeah. some of this work? So this starts actually with Nan Golden and David Wanarovich having a show in New York. And at that time we had um, something called the NEA, we still have it, but National Endowment for the Arts, which did tend to fund artists, not many, really only the most elite artists did get funding and it was hard to get, but it really didn't, it wasn't commented on or controlled by the government. But because of this 1980s, coalition between the evangelicals and the capitalist Republicans, people like Jesse Helms, who were very far to the right, who were basically fascists, suddenly had the full power of the Republican Party. And so they started to bring in this thing called the Family Protection Act, which was this right-wing manifesto that was very anti-gay and anti-women. And he suddenly wanted to be involved with who the NEA funded. So they uh, stopped funding for the show that David Wanarovich and Nan Golden did. And then they started going after larger fish. So it went to Robert Maplethorpe. And then there was a trial actually that was held in Cincinnati, which is, was a conservative city in Ohio. So, you know, you start to have these art trials going on at that point. And ever since then, the NEA has not really funded anything that's been very radical. Yeah, um, and this is all sort of happening at the end of the 1980s. And I think as you as you come into the 90s, there's um, there's a bit of a sort of shift in public perception and in the types of cultural work that are being produced. Um, so in the early- Julia, for a second, because it's, it's more complex than you think. Because if you get it, at that point, if you got attacked by the NEA, you got notoriety and some people's careers were entirely blown up and they, people mm -hmm. became known because they were being censored or someone like Maplethorpe, his prices went up, you know? So in a way it was a kind of PR at the same time that it was inappropriate because one of the factors of being in the avant-garde at that time was that you had no coverage at all in the mainstream media. So it did have a double-edged function. Mm. And it's, it's sort of interesting to think about some of the higher profile works from the early 1990s that come in the wake of this. Um, so I'd like to just maybe spend a few minutes talking about um, Tony Kushner's Angels in America in the States, one of the, you know, kind of emblematic works about the crisis and I think uh, the end of Derek Jarman's life and career here. So if we maybe um, spend a couple of minutes thinking about Tony Kushner first, um, part one of, of his epic play, Angels in America, uh, premieres in 1991 um, with like, angels and ghosts as characters, as well as people uh, living with and dying of AIDS-related illnesses, uh, one of whom is uh, Roy Cohn, um, who was a key figure in the McCarthy witch hunts, um, prosecutor of the Rosenbergs, who were accused of spying for the Soviet Union executed, and uh, a mentor of Donald Trump during his... Um, early business career. Right. Um, 
So I don't know if either of you would like to talk a little bit about angels in America and what type of work it well, is. Well, I have an iconoclastic take, take on it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'd like to Good. <laughs> Let's just look at it. So historically, you know, in 1985 is when Larry Kramer's play, um, The Normal Heart, was done off-Broadway at the Public Theater, and it was quite successful there. But after that run, it sort of went away. And there was talk for years of it becoming a movie, but nothing happened with it until 2011. Um, when, Larry, when Tony Kushner's play is quite complex because it comes at a time, uh, it, it, in 1991, 93, you see Angels in America and you also see Jonathan Demme's film, Philadelphia. And, they, and it starts to be the beginning of a certain kind of construction that you later see in Dallas Buyers Club and in a bunch of works where you have the gay person who's alone and they're dependent on a homophobic per straight person to heroically overcome their prejudices to help them. So Angels in America occurred at a time when people with AIDS and gay people with AIDS were abandoned by their families, by their government, by their society and joined together to force the country to change. But Angels in America doesn't show that. It shows gay people betraying each other and abandoning each other and the Reaganite Mormon straight person heroically going through a change. And that was a very palatable story. Just like Philadelphia shows a gay man with AIDS who needs a lawyer, but in the universe of that film, there are no gay lawyers. So he has to go to a homophobic straight person to defend him. So what these works all do is that they erase the gay community and they erase the gay political movement that actually was creating the change. They show gay people abandoning each other instead of straight people abandoning them. And then they get enormous amounts of approval. And what's interesting is that the normal heart, which has lots of problems, but at least it's accurate, right? Which these other pieces are not only comes back in 2011 with a Broadway revival, because by that time, the general public was ready for heroic gay people if they were white males. So it fulfilled a certain kind of white reconciliation role. Now in my book, Stage Struck, I detail all kinds of works about AIDS and people of color that were done at the same period. Rent is another one of these mega pieces that show completely different politics and that were totally ignored by the reward system. So, you know, I'm hoping that, it, I mean, Angels in America is too big to fail, but it, it really needs to be reevaluated. I, I, can I jump in just on Angels? Because I think it's a tremendously interesting point. And I, I actually rewatched the HBO adaptation um, not so long ago and felt actually very similar, similarly about it. And it's, it's, a, it's a work I've kind of grappled with on and off. And, uh, you know, the, I think there are things to be said in its defence. You know, the, some of the writing is extraordinary, um, but but that central narrative and it's striking, isn't it, that the the community, such as it is, turns up maybe in at one funeral. That's about it. Uh, and so, so any sense of kind of communal life, uh, it, you know, is is entirely absent. There are moments of of kind of uh, uh, queer solidarity in there, um, but it, it's notable how marginal they are. I mean, I think the thing that to be said in its defense is basically that that it has been, uh, you know, uh, it, it is the first work that I see in the mainstream where, it, where you know, it, it, homosexuality 
and the crisis is a theme alongside other things. And it's a very patriotic work in curious and I think quite uncomfortable ways. It is quite positive about America, uh, even though, though it has a critique of it. So I, you know, I feel uneasy about it, but there's no question that it's not a kind of huge work in that well, sense. Can we briefly compare those to the sort of final films of, of Derek Jarman, which were shown on Channel 4, got quite a big audience, but draw more on certain kind of avant-garde techniques and I think have quite a different attitude to activism and community. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'll jump in on Jarman. So I think that the film to really talk about, of course, is Blue, which is a film, you know, it's really remarkable. I, I saw it, I've seen it. They, they, they screened it in the IMAX here in London a few years ago, um, which was, so for, for listeners who don't know the film, uh, it, it is a single entirely blue screen for the whole film. And then it's effectively a, this kind of extraordinary um, audio journey uh, of kind of AIDS treatment and, and kind of this sort of uh, almost semi, de, uh, you know, delusory at points, uh, kind of uh, a, a response to sort of textured, incredible, you know, music from from kind of extraordinary people, including my, my favorite band, Coil, uh, which is, uh, it's always very pleasing to know that they're in the, the, the notes there. Um, but yeah, so this film, you know, it is broadcast on Channel 4 and, you know, Jarman's in a very curious position. You know, he is kind of, you know, outside the mainstream, but probably the mainstream's go to avant-gardist, um, you know, he is from a curious class background. He is public school, but, you know, actively embraces the counterculture. Um, his diaries are extraordinary. They're an extraordinary record of someone kind of, you know, refusing you know, he, he, in his diaries that he writes towards the end of his life. Um, you know, they, they've been published as a saint's testament and at your own risk. Um, you know, he says, you know, that he regrets nothing about being part of the despised sexual revolution. You know, you know and I think, you know, you know, you, you, you think about you, lots of kind of contemporary queer politics could do with reading those texts again, because they are much more daring than a lot of the stuff that passes for our community's politics. He says, but so Blue, Blue is just this very, very daring, very confrontational, actually, you know, very difficult to, to listen to, actually. And, you know, I, I have friends who really... Um, a bit older than me, friends who really, you know, have to be in the right place and can only, you know, really, really would not, it would not be a casual viewing experience. But yeah, so, you know, for me, Jarman felt very much towards the end of his life, they hadn't done enough in his film work to address the crisis. So a lot of those kind of late films, um, stuff like The Last of England, for instance, which is extraordinary, um, non-narrative uh, meditation on kind of England's Thatcherite decline, the extraordinary Tilda Swinton spinning uh, in a, a, a wedding dress to, to in fact, Diamanda Gallas, a, another great uh, uh, musician, a really beautiful sequence. But so Blue really is, he, he thought of as the kind of counterpart to the last of England, um, but, but this time sort of taking on, you know, his own kind of personal experience of the crisis I mean I just I think it's an extraordinary and still very very daring film yeah I agree and I think it's a really sort of interesting bookend to that sort of first great wave of the crisis in in the UK um, 1996 uh, two years after Jarman's death is quite a kind of pivotal year in in some ways um, the World Health Organization Global Program closes in 95, is replaced by a UN program on AIDS in 96. Um, in the US, like Bill Clinton introduces the National AIDS Strategy, um, 
although as before, the sort of aim to reduce number of infections and enhance research on treatment um, and access to resources and alleviate the racial disparities in HIV treatment and care, these are not meaningfully enforced. Um, but there's a triple combination therapy that becomes standard in 1996. And although there's still no cure, it allows patients to manage the conditions much more effectively. Um, this, this is sort of a paradigm shift again, I think. Um, so HIV and AIDS at this point is less prevalent in the West. It's still a huge problem in Africa in particular. And in 2018, there were nearly 38 million people living worldwide with HIV, um, 770,000 deaths that year, um, more than 20 million cases in Eastern and Southern Africa. Um, and indeed African-Americans are most severely affected now in the US in 2017, an estimated 43% of new infections uh, affected that community and 52% of the age-related deaths in the US. Um, and it's also sort of higher prevalence in Latinos and in American Indian and Alaskan native populations. Um, but nonetheless, you know, by even by the end of the 90s, I think, but certainly into the 21st century, there was a kind of formation of mainstream narratives about the crisis in the US and the UK. Um, so maybe we could spend the last 10 minutes of the program talking about the formation of those narratives um, and how they tie in with gentrification, particularly in cities like London, New York, uh, maybe even like Manchester and obviously San Francisco um, that had historically had quite big like queer communities. Well, 1996 is the beginning of the Great Divide, you know, because in a country with no functional healthcare delivery, having developed the, the, the necessary treatments did not mean that people would get them. And so you get to this point where we sort of defeated HIV, but we couldn't defeat capitalism. And so you end up with these two different stories. You know, you get Andrew Sullivan, the uh, writing in the, on the front page of the New York Times Magazine when plagues end in 1997, saying that because he and his friends could get protease inhibitors, AIDS is over. And then 2017, you have Linda Villarosa, the black lesbian journalist, writing in the cover story of the same magazine that black gay men in the US South have rates of infection that are higher than any country in the world. And this is where we are today. So even in New York City, 1600 people every year die of AIDS, but they're not um, diagnosed until they get to the emergency room because they have no healthcare. You know, so that's where we are. Mm -hmm. And that could be where we go with the COVID vaccine, I wanna say yeah. as well. I mean, I, th I think it's probably worth saying that here in here in Britain, you know, I mean, the, the, the way in which like, the, so lots of kind of, you know, people, there's a very curious trend, I think, about the way in which, so there's an anxiety that, that, you know, in, in kind of contemporary culture that, oh, we're, you know, it's a, you, you get it every so often, oh, we're forgetting the struggle, um, we're forgetting the, 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 the movement, um, we need to memorialize, um, we need to remember, and so on and so on and so on. And I think that impulse is a good one, right? I think it's true. I think lots of young queer people are basically very, very cut off from their their past and that's partly because you know queer people actually have to find their community and be inducted into it it's not something that that you get from from the year dot um however what goes alongside that is the impulse to sanctify the past and i think one of the things that's been consistent in your account of this sarah has been you know 
like actually these people were messy and you know yes that's part of, of what gave them power but it's also like you know, it's an important part of the history to recognize that the people who took action were not saints they were people like you and me um and i think you know you know to make them into these kind of like uh, rather sentimentalized and rather bloodless figures uh, is incredibly dangerous and it's incredibly dangerous because it sets up an incredibly dangerous pattern for contemporary activism as well we're not saints we're not going to be saints and that doesn't prevent us from acting so i think that's hugely hugely important in kind of contemporary um hiv aids kind of uh, uh culture or you know the memorialization culture and it's just the other side of this i think um you know in terms of gentrification the queer spaces in which like the, certainly the movement in the uk would have been forged are now almost entirely gone uh, certainly in central london that you know they're pretty much wiped out uh you give, you've got a few really upmarket bars um most of which i <laughs> wouldn't set foot in uh, if you paid me um and so it's hard to find but you know when i came out you know i was sort of my sort of mid late teens sort of sneaking into bars illegally um you know, very, very common story. And I just caught the tail of the end of what was, you know, quite a lively queer culture. Uh, and, you know, I fear about those physical spaces. I fear for the life of cities without them, actually, and, and, and our life as a community without them. Well, I, I want to, I have some good news. So let's get, let me say about where I think the queer movement is right now. I mean, you know, historically, the reason there was an independent gay movement was because other movements wouldn't have us. The left historically rejected queer people and we were on our own. And so we were forced into creating our own movement. Now, queer people in their leadership of every movement. So if you look at, for example, Black Lives Matter, two of the three women who started it were queer. They have a pro-trans, pro-Palestine position in their manifesto. Um, leaders of DACA, the Dreamers are queer. Palestine Solidarity is there are a lot of queer people in that movement. You know, there's not this feeling that you were all pushed into this gay movement now. And that's why we have like uh, black trans women as an emblem uh, of the liberation movements right now in the United States, even though it's a little bit more symbolic than it is actual, right? But so, so queer people are now in all the radical movements and in the US groups like DSA, Democratic Socialists of America are, have lots of queer people in leadership. So that's the good news, you know, that it's, it's part of the progressive agenda in a way it's never been before. Yeah, and I think it might just be interesting to conclude the show. We've got about five minutes left. Um, just with any sort of thoughts about how, um, you know, the eighties and nineties have been portrayed in um, subsequent culture produced in the 21st century. Sarah, you've already mentioned um, Dallas Buyers Club. Um, I was quite struck by the French film uh, 120 Beats Per Minute that came out in 2017, which is a, a kind of look back at ACT UP in, um, in France. Um, I think it's an interesting question, you know, these, these films, you know, it feels like one reason why there is um, an interest in this subject now is because a lot of the people who um, were involved with these histories would have been recording them, died, but there's still a generation of people alive who knew those people and so can take part in retrospective uh, cultural output. Um, does this tie into some sort of anxiety that the history won't be recorded properly or narrative needs to be challenged? Well, I love Beats Per Minute. I thought it was fantastic. Um, 
yeah, the danger is to whitewash these movements and to say that they were exclusively white and male, even though they were predominantly white and male, they were not exclusively white and male and it makes a big difference because when women and people of color are involved in movements, they have enormous amounts of influence and those movements become transformed. So more accurate histories, but also you know, more complex concept of how change is made. You know, right now there's a there's a tendency on the left to try to force homogeneity of strategies, of what words you use, of we all have to agree on this analysis. That has never worked historically, that will never work. It's the big tent movements that are radically democratic, that allow for wide, wide range of simultaneous reaction. Those are the movements that are more successful. And the further away we can get from micromanaging each other, which is where we are right now, to really letting a thousand flowers bloom, that then we will be far more successful. Yeah, just a last word on, on that, the reception of 120 beats per minute. Um, I thought just super, super interesting because it was very widely and deservedly fettered um, you know, in, in the press. Uh, but what struck me was the number of people who admired it. And this is a common syndrome um, when sort of sort of uh, metropolitan sort of, uh, you know, rather centrist liberals look at past movements. They think you know, all direct action movements of the past were good. But fortunately, we've reached a state now where we never need anything like that ever again. And it's, it's a common theme of, of their analysis. And it drives me up the wall. These people would have hated ACT UP at the time. And I wish they would realise it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if the last five years of keeping tabs on liberal commentators have made me realise anything, it's that self-awareness is not a strong suit of theirs. <laughs> um, so I'm not expecting much reflection on their part or even for them to listen to us. Um, so, you know, I think we we should conclude there. Um, I think there's an awful lot to think about the past, but also how it feeds into the future. And obviously in this age of COVID-19 and, you know, with this, well, this plenary of vaccines, uh, hopefully on the horizon and then all sorts of political issues about how they're, um, they're distributed. Um, I think there's an awful lot to be learned from, um, from the eighties and nineties and the um, subsequent cultural and political memorialization of the crisis. So um, James, Sarah, thanks so much for uh, everything you've shared today. Thank, Thank you, you Juliet. So Such a delight. Um, yeah, absolute pleasure to have you both on. Um, listeners, we'll be back uh, next month on Resonance 104.4 FM, same time, same place. I've been and will be your host, Juliet Jakes. See you next month. Take care. Goodbye.